We'll hear argument next in Norfolk Southern Railway versus Sorrell. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The fundamental question in this case <clears throat> is whether the common law doctrine of equivalence between defendant negligence and plaintiff negligence applies under the, under the FELA. The uh, doctrine of equivalence is, I think, most clearly stated in the restatement second of torts, which is reproduced in page 19 of our uh, blue brief in the middle paragraph, and I think it's worth taking a second to read it. The rules which determine the causal relation between the plaintiff's negligent conduct and the harm resulting to him are the same as those determining the causal relation between the defendant's negligent conduct and resulting harm to others. That is a principle of law that has been in effect long before the Federal Employers Liability Act was enacted. It is obviously a restatement of the law in 1965, and it is an absolutely clear statement of the law as it applies today. There is nothing in the Federal Employers Liability Act that remotely modifies the doctrine of equivalence. The two provisions, Section 51, uh, talks about negligence resulting from, or negligence in, in whole or in part, and Section 53, which describes the uh, contributory negligence portion, or comparative negligence, talks about negligence attributable to. None of that deviates at all from any kind of common law doctrines. Negligence inherently calls for an analysis of proximate causation. Except that uh, the, what was it, the Rogers case, uh, which which said that the, well, you, you debate whether it said that, but let's assume that it said that uh, uh, the rule of uh, proximate causality doesn't apply to the uh, negligence of the defendant. Uh, the basis for that holding was, was that in whole or in part language, which is used for the negligence of the defendant but not used for the contributory negligence. So if you believe that that case was at least uh, decided for the right reason, it seems to me there's a good argument that it changed it for the one but not for the other. Well, it, it, even if that were true, you, we would still, of course, be entitled to uh, — I mean, I, I, it doesn't change the doctrine of equivalence. It doesn't say that we're not entitled to the same rule with respect to the — our claims <clears throat> against no, contributory negligence that the plaintiff would be. Oh, that, that doctrine is unaffected by that, by that holding. Now, I'd like to take issue with the interpretation of Rogers, if you want, at this point. But I, it seems to me the doctrine of equivalence is fundamentally different from the doctrine of pro proximate causation. And but therefore, you could change one without affecting the other one whatsoever. Mr. Phillips, the, the fundamental problem, at least for me in this case, is that it was no objection at all at trial to the instruction that the judge gave on negligence. There was an instruction requested by the defendant on contributory negligence, which read, such negligence of plaintiff contributed in whole or in part to cause his injury. That was the only instruction objected to, because the refusal to give that instruction. But you seem to be using that as a lever to attack the instruction on negligence to which no objection was made. No, that's, that's not our attack, Justice Ginsburg. Our, our objection, which is reproduced in 28A of the, of the petition, its appendix, it says, and I think the current MAI instruction has a different causation standard for comparative fault, meaning that under Missouri's rules, we must prove that such negligence of plaintiff directly contributed to the cause to cause the injury, and that misstates the law because of the doctrine of equivalence. That's, the, that's our initial argument is that no matter how you analyze this, 
whether you, whether you do it from a proximate cause or a slightest cause standard is the appropriate way to evaluate our negligence. That same standard has to be applied in evaluating the plaintiff's negligence. That's, that's the core doctrine. That's what we saw certiorari on. The argument with respect to Rogers was not an argument we put into this case, Justice Ginsburg. It's an argument that the respondents put into this case. Well, I, I take it you would be satisfied, uh, not wholly satisfied, but substantially satisfied if we said, yeah, we accept the doctrine of equivalence and, and we think the, the instruction on contributory negligence was correct. Uh, because that would mean in the next case you would get approximate cause instruction on, on, on uh, defendant's negligence. We would regard that as, as certainly at least half a loaf, maybe more than half a loaf. But yeah. in, at the end of the day, I think the right answer in this case is that the Court ought to go ahead and decide whether or not Rogers really do, did work a, a sea change in the law. Because well, if, if we came out the way I, I, I just — You wouldn't have to address I, that we, issue. We'd have to. Absolutely don't have to address that issue. On the other hand, the question is squarely presented, and — But I, the, I thought you argued the Rogers standard to — that there was the correct standard in the Missouri court. Well, we clearly did that, Justice Kennedy. And we didn't raise — we didn't — we're not here complaining about Rogers as an argument for why we shouldn't be liable. That's not our — we're not criticizing that. What we're saying is, in response to the respondent's argument — which seeks to undermine the doctrine of equivalence based on an overreading, I would argue, of Rogers, that that interpretation is, is incorrect. And if we're right that that interpretation is incorrect, we would win on the doctrine of, on the, on the doctrine of equivalence for two different reasons. The first one that Justice Souter described, and the second one would be that, that to the extent that there's any equivalence, there's no problem here because proximate cause is required in every case. And we think that that's an issue that the Court but, doesn't have to decide, but, but certainly could. To, I'm sorry, Mr. Your Honor. Phillips, the, the Defendant requested a charge on contributory negligence that read, such negligence of plaintiff contributed in whole or in part to cause his injury. You didn't want the direct relationship. You didn't ask for that. You asked for one that said, such negligence of plaintiff contributed in whole or part to his injury. And now you're saying that that was what you asked for was an incorrect charge. No, what, what, uh, what we're saying, Justice Ginsburg, is that we were entitled to the same, if they're going to use slight negligence with respect to our negligence, then with respect to the plaintiff's negligence, we were entitled to slight negligence as well. That's our fundamental argument. That's the issue we put on the table. And candidly, I don't think there's an answer to that that's been offered in this case other than a harmless error argument, which I think is candidly without substance. The issue, then, is whether in evaluating the doctrine of equivalence, do you want to then entertain the plaintiff's or the respondent's counterargument, which is that somehow Rogers requires this fundamental change and, indeed, overrules the doctrine of equivalence as it applies to FILA. And I would say, one, Rogers doesn't speak to the doctrine of equivalence at all, and, two, to the extent it does speak to it, it was never meant to change the fundamental rule with respect to proximate causation. Yeah, except we, we've, we've rejected the petitions for certiorari on that issue at, at least a couple of times. Eleven circuits are in agreement as to what Rogers required. You, you, you well, at least one circuit. Really, really. You really expect uh, to get five votes for the railroad on, on, on this, what would be a massive change of what is assumed to be the law for, what, 50 years? Well, I think the answer, well, I, I, my, the answer is yes. Of course I expect to get five votes for that. <laughs> you didn't. 
But, but you were wise enough not to ask for that. I mean, you, 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 you only all, all asked for course, equivalences. <laughs> but, you know, the basic, the, the point here is that if you look at the decisions that have analyzed this Court's opinion in Rogers, I don't think any of them has analyzed it with much care. And the reality is the Third Circuit has analyzed this case with care and reached the opposite conclusion. We, we think there's a split in the circuits, and at some point, if not, if not through this vehicle to address that issue, then through another vehicle to address that issue. But, yes, we th- we th- it seems reasonably clear that, first of all, there were — at least 20 decisions of this Court dealing not only with the sufficiency evidence but also with the adequacy of the jury instructions prior to Rogers that refer specifically to proximate causation. There is nothing in the statute that remotely meant to change that. There's nothing that's been identified in that context. And it, it is at least clear to me, and I hope clear to five Rogers two, said in whole or in part did. Now, I agree with you that I don't see how that does it, but that's Rogers said that it did it. But what Rogers says in whole or in part eliminated was the specific proximate causation standard existing in Missouri. And Missouri's proximate cause standard talked about sole causation. And this Court said, no, in whole or in part means the sole causation cannot be the right standard for proximate cause. The Court was not asked to decide, and I don't think it did decide, that proximate causation, as it is traditionally understood, was also thrown out the door. Or, Or more fundamentally, that you can never ask for a jury instruction that calls for proximate causation to be given to both well, let me, let me throw you. Oh, I'm sorry. Mr. Phil, I maybe lost the bidding here, but I mean, which I'm looking at the instructions that were given, and it seems to me it's hard to take issue with the instruction for, on the railroad's part because it tracks the statutory language. The statute says in whole or in part, and the instruction says in whole or in part. Right. So if you're pushing your, the doctrine of equivalence, your objection seems to be to the directly contributed language with respect to the um, the employee, the plaintiff. Right. Now, but doesn't directly contributed, isn't that a trip, typical proximate cause instruction? Yeah, that is a typical proximate cause instruction, and that meant that, the, that our burden was heavier than the plaintiff's burden, which is why we're saying that if, under the doctrine of equivalence, we're entitled to the equivalent instructions, whatever they are, if it's like, well, but on the it's like hand, cause or, or proximate cause. Right, but on the other hand, you're also arguing in favor of proximate cause. You're saying Rogers didn't change proximate cause. Right. right. But we're only doing that in response to the respondent's argument. I'm not I did, we didn't bring to this Court an affirmative argument that said we're entitled to no liability because of the proximate cause. That's not the argument we made. The, the argument how, — How is the blue brief in response to respondent's argument? Because if you look at the opposition to the cert petition, which took us to task for not discussing Rogers in our, in our petition, it says on page 6, inexplicably, Petitioner does not cite, let alone discuss Rogers, an omission that enfeebles its entire discussion of FELA's causation standards. Against that kind of an attack, we felt it incumbent on us to deal with Rogers. As we're supposed to decide the case, in your view, there was instruction 13. Instruction 13 used the word direct. Yes. You object 13. You said it should use the word in whole or in part. Yes. You then argued to the lower courts, and 13 should use the word in whole or in part. And then you say you've argued that here. So what you're saying is now we're supposed to decide, should instruction 13 use the word in whole or in part? That's what it is. 
I have to admit I didn't quite get that out of the blue brief. I thought you were arguing something else about railroad negligence. But you're not, now you say, arguing about railroad negligence. You're arguing about plaintiff negligence. Right. We're arguing both. Right. So, so if I reread the blue brief, what I'll discover on closer examination that your real objection, not responding to the other side, has simply been about the standard to use uh, in respect to plaintiff's contributory negligence. And what you want this Court to say is, you're right about that. We want the more relaxed standard used for contributory negligence. Yes, End well, of case. Right. Yes? Th- yes, that would it be says fine. says that in the blue brief? Yes, it does say that in the blue brief. Just because what we say is that the doctrine of equivalence is the, is the principle that should apply. And, you know, it's not specifically before the Court whether that means slight cause or proximate. Well, I would say it's sure it's before the Court. Because what we're considering before the Court is your objection to Instruction 13. And you said it should use the words in whole or in part. And I have to admit, I don't know why it shouldn't. But right. I'll have to ask them that. Right. But well, that's, that's uh, And you're going to say yes. But so all this other stuff is quite extraneous about whether uh, the railroad standard of negligence, the railroad should be in a relaxed standard of negligence in whole or in part. Well, I don't know that it's, it's causation. I don't know that it's extraneous. It clearly is not something that the court needs to decide. On the other hand, it's, it's something that the respondents, to my mind at least, put into the case, and then we responded to be sure, somewhat aggressively, in urging the court to rethink whether Rogers was right, whether Rogers really decided this issue, as some courts of appeals have. The, the court okay. doesn't need to decide that. It's faulty, but as as I recall, the, your opening brief. Uh, many pages were devoted to what instruction should have been given on railroads' negligence. You were dealing not simply with what seemed to be the question presented, that is, was the, cons- was the instruction on contributory negligence wrong because it said um, it didn't use the in whole or in part language. Instead, it said directly caused. So that's the limits of what we can deal with, whether the in whole or in part should have been in the contributory negligence. But it was your brief that spent a lot of time talking about the proper standard for the railroad's negligence. There's no question about that, Justice Ginsburg, but the point is that we made both arguments, and they're in some ways intertwined, in part because so much of the doctrine of equivalence itself is based on proximate cause as the standard. And whether, so if you go back and look at all of the common law analyses here, which, you, which are the you, predicate. You didn't object to the charge that was given on negligence. You didn't object to the in whole and part. So that should be out of the case. Except to the extent that the respondents are asking you to interpret Rogers as a mechanism for getting at the doctrine of equivalence. Now, it seems to me you can answer that in one of two ways. You can simply say, as I said to Justice Scalia, Rogers doesn't speak to the doctrine of equivalence, and therefore you don't have to entertain that. You should just reaffirm a doctrine that every court, except the courts in Missouri, have recognized for a very long time. Or alternatively, you can say, well, look, they say that in order to to properly analyze the doctrine of equivalence, you should examine whether or not Rogers worked to see change in the law. And we took him up on that argument and said, we don't think it did, and that, and, and that if it didn't work a sea change in the law, then there is no basis at all for, for doubting that you would, you would grant equivalent instructions in these two cases. And that's the guidance you would give to the lower courts on remand, because this case has well, to go you back were, for a new you trial. You're not taking them up on any argument when you spent half your brief arguing about what the proper standard was 
for the railroad's negligence. Yeah, and I would add to that that we don't usually look at a BIO to see the issue that the uh, petitioner is presenting. And, and, you know, Justice Kennedy, I understand that, but the reality is we raise the doctrine of equivalence as our, as our question presented. The other side raises and uses a, spe- a substantial amount of its pages to the issue of the meaning of Rogers. We answer that in the reply brief. The Court grants certiorari. We decided under those circumstances that the sensible way to proceed was to address the Rogers issue. Now, it, to be sure, I suppose we could have said, you know, here's section one is the doctrine of equivalence. That's a 10-page brief. Or maybe the, the better way to do it is just write a 15-page brief, wait for their 47-page brief on Rogers, and then 20 pages on Rogers, but we anticipated that they were going to do precisely what they did, which so you would, spend you a would lot ha- of time on it. You would have us uh, an, announce a decision on the doctrine of equivalence without saying which way it should be made equivalent? You, you clearly raising the, raising the railroad standard or lowering the employees? Well, because the courts of appeals have been doing that for years. There have been a lot, you know, a lot of them assume that there's a lower standard, and they say that the doctrine of equivalence requires that if you, you if the plaintiff gets to go with slight Cause, then the defendant gets slight cause. So that, that's a ruling that's been, out, that's been rendered for years and years. Is that the most sensible way? I, I don't know. I think it would make sense for this Court to address the more fundamental issue of Rogers, because I think it's an important issue that needs to be decided. I don't think the Court needs to decide. I do think it's been thoroughly vetted for the Court on both sides, and it would certainly provide significant guidance to the lower Court. Mr. Phillips, may I ask you this question? Assuming you're right on, on the doctrine of equivalence, and you're wrong on proximate cause for the moment. Uh, and you said earlier in your argument, it's perfectly clear there was no harmless error here. Yes. It seemed to me that there's a, a, a possible interpretation of the record, and I'd like you to comment it, is that the jury either believed uh, the one, witness, one truck driver or the other, and that the direct causation thing really didn't have any impact on the uh, uh, calculation of damages. And I was going to ask you to comment on that and to tell me whether during the argument of the case before the jury, did the plaintiff's lawyer argue in effect that he has, the railroad has a much heavier burden of proving a causation than we do? Uh, let, let me take the first question first and then I'll address the second one. The, there were three theories that the plaintiff put forward of the negligence of the railroad, not just that the one driver drove the other driver off the side of the road. There was also a claim that the road wasn't constructed properly, and there was a claim that the um, that he wasn't given adequate safety instructions. And there's no way, given that this was a general verdict, to remotely figure out which of those theories was the one the jury thought was correct and how that theory might line up with a causation theory based on the on the plaintiff's own uh, particular view and the defendant's arguments in this particular case. So it's not as cut and dried as he said, he said, and that's it. There were more theories in it. And, it's, and you know, if you accept the idea that jury instructions count, and there's clearly a very different burden that's imposed on one as opposed to the other, then it seems to me the, uh, uh, the answer is there's no way for the Court to make a harmless error determination. It's also a question of state law. It, it ought to be decided by the Missouri courts in the first instance in any event, I would think rather than this Court trying to sort through the record. Uh, with respect to the argument of the, at the close of the case, I don't remember any specific arguments that either side made with respect to, uh, to the burdens because the jury instructions were what they were, and I think each side was saying, you know, we really didn't do anything wrong. And so that's basically the way that it was presented. But I think given the way the jury instructions played out, 
uh, that, that there's no way at this time to unscramble that. I think I've seen now, I think the structure of your brief is perhaps a gloss put on it, but you're saying this, look, we objected to the contributory negligence instruction on the ground that it couldn't be different from the direct instruction, That's from, the, from the railroad instruction. And we said they should be the same and they should both be in whole or in part. Correct. And we now want you to say that the refusal of the Court to do that was wrong because it violated the equivalence. But as soon as you do that, you're going to have to think about what the right standard should be for a new trial. Right. And if you stop there, probably they will put the in whole or in part. But that's not the right standard. Correct. And if you really think about it, you will see that the one we didn't ask for uh, in, but the one that the Court gave is the right standard and should have been given in the other case, too. Now, we wouldn't have to say that. Right. But you're saying unless you say that, you're not going to give proper instruction to what happens in the future. Now, in this, let's even take in this that particular for a minute case. on the merits. I'm sorry? How could it be wrong? How could it be wrong to have instructed the jury with the in whole or in part language for the, for the, for the railroad? since that's the language of the statute itself? Well, I think if we were entitled to go back to the trial court and if the issue was what's the proper instruction, we would have asked for and we should have properly received a proximate cause instruction. And that's, that's, what, that's the question that would be on issue, issue in remand. What, what possible? You have two sides. One, you write a proximate cause instruction in whatever language you like. Right. The other side submits a proposed instruction within whole or in part. I'm a trial judge. I've never heard of this case, kind of case, before I just was appointed. I read the statute, and I say, well, here, there says what the statute says, and yours doesn't. I'll play it safe. I'll go with the statute. All right, now, now how could that be an error? Well, it's not a correct statement of the, of the law, right. is the answer at the, the end of the day. The statute said is not a correct statement of the law? Well, because it doesn't adequately explain to the jury what decision-making it has to go through in order to evaluate this case. I mean, it is true. It's, it's not an incorrect statement in the sense that there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not an adequate statement not because sufficient. it doesn't deal. It's not sufficient. It doesn't deal with the proximate cause issue. I mean, okay, it seems Mr. to me. Mr. Mr. Phillips, may I in, interrupt on, on, on exactly the point that I think you're, you're addressing with Justice Breyer? As I understand your argument, uh, you're saying uh, — one view of Rogers is that the in whole or in part language eliminates the proximate cause instruction. We all agree that that is one view of Rogers. Right. But it also does something else, and I don't think we disagree about that either. It, it, it specifically instructs the jury that multiple causation may be present, and if it is, if the defendant is at least one, the source of one of those causes, under Rogers, even slightly, right. that that will suffice. The problem I have with, in, in a way, with your response to Justice Breyer, and the problem that I have with the instruction that, that your side requested on contributory negligence is this. It seems to me that the in whole or in part language 
would be wrong on contributory negligence, or at least it would be very misleading, for the simple reason that you never get to contributory negligence unless you found the defendant was negligent in the first place. Right. And therefore, if the plaintiff is also negligent, it will necessarily be in part. It couldn't be wholly or in part. If it were wholly negligent, you would never have found the defendant was negligent in the first place. So that to the extent the instruction addresses multiple causation, Mm -hmm. it would be misleading to the jury and it would assume a possibility that couldn't happen. Therefore, if you're not going to mislead the jury on multiple causation when, when you instruct on contributory negligence, you've got to have some other way of addressing the proximate cause language. Is, is that analysis right or wrong? I, I, well, I think it's wrong on two, two levels. One is, I don't know why you would need to have proximate cause in the, as, the, as your fallback, the last comment you just made, because it seems to me if you're saying slight cause, which is what Missouri thinks the in whole or in part means, then you could just say slight cause when you're describing the contributory. Okay, but the instruction that. that your side asked for, as I understand it, was not a slight cause instruction. It was in, an in whole or in part instruction. Yeah, but we asked for it was an equivalent. Okay, and that, all right. But, but if you're asking for the in whole or in part instruction on contributory negligence, it seems to me the judge has got to have been correct in saying no to that because to the extent that it addresses multiple causation, it would be addressing a problem that couldn't even occur in contributory negligence, which will always be in that, part. That was not the basis on which the judge rejected it. He didn't reject well, it. Well, maybe that was not the basis in which he rejected it, but it, 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 we've got to consider it in deciding whether to reverse him. Well, the point here, it remains, is we said we are entitled to an equivalent instruction. Now, if there's some variant of that, you, we could certainly argue about that. But, but that's not what he said. He said the equivalence instruction was not on multiple causation. It was the equivalence instruction on either proximate cause or not proximate cause. It was the causation issue. It was the proximate causation issue, not the multiple causation issue that concerned you, right? Well, that's and the specific say, issue if, in if, this if case. They don't right? have to have proximate. We don't have to have proximate. Right. Okay. That's our argument. But, but because the instruction addresses both, in, in one view, proximate cause and multiple cause, it would have been misleading so far as the multiple cause issue is concerned, and, and a request for an instruction uh, in whole or in part on contributory negligence really should have been denied. Isn't well, that I, correct? I think, I, I think the argument would be that that cuts it too fine, candidly. I think you can make an argument that that, you know, what we were entitled to was some variant, and that, you know, the, our objection here is not. You were entitled, your argument is you were entitled to an equivalent instruction on the issue of the need to prove proximate cause, cause or no need to prove proximate cause. Right. That's your basic That's argument. our basic argument. Okay. And we didn't get that. And, and I don't think you could have gotten where you want to go with the instruction that, that your side requested, which was an in-whole or in-part instruction. That's my only point. Well, it may be that the in-whole part of this may, may have been slightly misleading, although I think you can make an argument that you can end up with in-whole on both sides uh, as a conceptual matter. But that's not the, that wasn't the complaint at the at trial. It wasn't the basis for the trial judge's decision. It wasn't the basis for the Court of Appeals' decision. If the Court wants to send it back and say, is, is there another objection to this instruction? That's fine. But it seems to me this Court ought to address this issue in the way it's been presented. What was wrong with the instruction, in your view of the case, that was given? 
instruction number 13, negligence of plaintiff directly contributed to causation? Because that's proximate causation, and that's higher than we were required to prove under a doctrine of equivalence. It's the direct language. Yes. Yeah. I'd like to reserve that. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Ms. Perry? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The controlling question raised here is whether Instruction 13 accurately states federal law. That's exactly what petitioners said in their reply brief to the Missouri Court of Appeal. They could not have been any clearer that their challenge was to Instruction 13. In John v. Pollan, this Court said that state courts have the authority to prescribe the rules of procedure in their courts, even when federal issues are at stake. The requirements in the Missouri courts were not complied with here. No abstract question was presented. The sole question presented and preserved was with respect to Instruction 13. And that can again be seen in their opening brief in the Missouri Court of Appeal, which specifically says the trial court erred in giving Instruction 13 based on MAI 32.07b. Is the, is the question whether Instruction 13 is flawed viewed in isolation or whether it's flawed when it's viewed together with the instruction on employer negligence? It's viewed in conjunction with the instruction on employer negligence, but a fixed concept of what it was. They did not challenge the language of Instruction 12. They accepted that, holding that language constant, what should we do to Instruction 13? They could have objected to Instruction 12 and 13, and they could have said, here are a pair of instructions both in proximate cause, and here are a pair of instructions both in resulting in whole or in part, and then they could have preserved this issue. But they did not do that. They accepted Instruction 12 as a correct statement of the law and said, now let's look at Instruction 13. But do you agree that they set out different causation standards, 12 and 13? Yes, they do. Rogers concluded that 50 years ago, and the courts in the federal and state system have nearly uniformly interpreted uh, Rogers as So if the causation standards are, in fact, the same, then Instruction 13 is, is defective. Isn't that right? Yes, but you can reach that decision without interpreting Instruction 12 or the propriety of Instruction 12, particularly since Instruction 12 contained the exact language of the statute. Whatever judicial gloss has been put on that language was not told to the jury. Justice Stevens, the question you asked whether there was any argument about the different standards, the answer is no. There was no argument. The only way in which the jury learned of this difference was in the language of the instructions. And Instruction 12. Let me ask you this question, if I may. Perhaps I should have asked Mr. Phillips. But is there such an animal as the doctrine of equivalence? I understand the restatement describes what the plaintiff's burden is on proving causation, and then it says the same rules apply to defendant uh, proving contributory negligence. But that doesn't sound to me like any overriding doctrine of equivalence. It just says when they wrote the restatement, the rules were the same. Is there such a thing as a doctrine of equivalence? There wasn't in the early 1900s, for certain, um, Your Honor, because at that time even petitioners recognized the, the doctrine was emerging. And if we look at the language of 53, it talks about the type of contributory negligence that used to be a bar. 
And that certainly was a type of contributory negligence that only arose with the traditional proximate cause. It certainly wasn't on the slightest cause standard. Well, doesn't there have to be a doctrine of equivalence when you're running a comparative negligence regime? Because you talk about the uh, plaintiff's negligence uh, causing the harm to a certain degree and the defendant's negligence causing it to a certain degree. And if you're not dealing with apples and apples, it seems to me you can't conduct the comparison. No, Your Honor, you can conduct the comparison, and it happens all the time in cases where one party has uh, uh, committed intentional misconduct and another party has had negligent misconduct. The causation standards are different in that instance. There's well, a broader right, but causation. But we're talking about for, comparative negligence here, where there's negligence on both sides. And I just don't know how you say that one party's 20 percent con- contributed 20 percent to the harm and the other 80 percent if you're doing — if you're using different causation standards. Well, the causation standard is used to decide what negligence you use in the balance and in the comparison. For example, if a party is negligent, but the negligence had no causative effect, that negligence falls out of the analysis. Yeah, but uh, your, your example of other instances, uh, including uh, uh, having com- to compare uh, a defendant who, who did the tort intentionally with negligent, uh, contributory negligence, that's, uh, that, that's not what we have here. We, we have here a, a, a difference in the causation intentional or non-intentional has nothing to do with causation. But once you say that there's a difference in the causation, it seems to me you cannot compare the two. Uh, You cannot compare the two sensibly unless you're using the same kind of a standard. I mean, uh, let's assume that that you find that the the railroad um, uh, did not directly but but nonetheless uh, caused the injury to some extent. But the defendant was directly contributory to it. What do I do? Do I add uh, uh, another 40 percent to his uh, uh, culpability because it was uh, his causation was more direct than the uh, plaintiff's causation? No. It Why just not? affects which negligence is in the balance. And no, it doesn't. It, it, certainly, it certainly bears considerably upon, uh, uh, upon uh, the, the culpability of the two. It seems to me. Well, and in responding, um, going back to your question about intentional conduct, uh, yeah. petitioner's reply, reply brief in fact states that a broader range of harms are considered proximately caused by intentional torts. So there is a different conception of proximate cause in that context. But in any event, their merits brief um, consistently argues for a proximate cause standard. In fact, it closes with that. And its criticism of Instruction 13 in this case was precisely that it was a proximate cause standard. So if they are now before this Court asking for a proximate cause standard, they conceded that Instruction 13 was a proximate cause standard. They, in fact, complained about it precisely because it was a proximate cause standard. That issue really isn't before this Court anymore. You don't have any conceptual difficulty with adding in whole or in part to Instruction 13, which is the employee's instruction, because it, it's comparative negligence. It seems to me that necessarily implies in whole or in part. If you can reduce his recovery because he's in part negligent, what would be wrong with saying in whole or in part in, in Instruction 13? Well, I think Justice Souter um, hit the nail on the head on that one in that it does create confusion and it can mislead the jury that the, the, the uh, railroad worker is responsible for other parties' 
culpability as well. Moreover, no, no. I thought Justice Souter's point was that taking it out of the railroads instruction might cause confusion because of it. But I don't see how adding it to, to both of them, when you're dealing with comparative negligence, and the, it's necessarily the case that partial negligence uh, on, on either of their parts can go, enter into the verdict. I don't see how that can be confusing. Well, in in in. <laughs> Well, let me, or you can maybe, answer. Maybe, maybe, maybe I, I should, don't answer, maybe I should answer the question. I got it. <laughs> uh, no, the point. Answer the question, the, Justice. The, the, point that yes I was, no. the point that I was trying to make about it being misleading is that if you use the in whole or in part language for a contributory negligence instruction, you are misleading the jury into thinking that at least there might be whole contributory negligence. There never will be. You don't get to contributory negligence unless you've already found the defendant was negligent, at least to some degree. Therefore, if the plaintiff is negligent, it can only be in part. That's all I was trying to get at. May, well, may even I? under that under that scenario, then, what objection could there be to a recognition that uh, the negligence of the plaintiff can contribute in part to the accident? If... Um, petitioner had asked for an instruction that said directly contributed in part. The inclusion of the phrase in part there might not have any impact. It could still potentially mislead the jury, but they were seeking not just to add the words resulting in whole or in part, but remove the word directly because it connoted proximate cause and that they felt proximate cause was not the appropriate standard for um, contributory negligence, even though now that is the it, the standard that they solely are seeking. Well, two things you, you might comment on. First, the in whole or in part might take account of the fact that there are other negligent actors, third parties, uh, who have contributed to the injury uh, to the employee. Secondly, I, I, um, Section 53 does not contain the language whole or in part. Absolutely, Your Honor. It does not. And Section Oh, but that's for the reason Justice Souter's identified. Right? That's not because they're adopting different standards. I disagree, Your Honor. I think it is because they're adopting different standards. The contributory negligence. Well, you just told me a good reason for not putting in whole or in part in Instruction 13 is because it doesn't make sense. The whole part doesn't make sense with contributory negligence. That's a good reason not to put it in Section 53 either. That's one reason. But another reason is that it's a different standard. In Section 53, they're talking about contributory negligence that was a bar to liability. That type of contributory negligence was the kind that was more than — it wasn't caused by slight causation. It required proximate cause. That was a pretty harsh result. And it certainly didn't arise in instances where the plaintiff had just had the slightest causal connection. And that certainly was the conclusion in Rogers. Well, I think you're — well, well, may may I pick you up on that? Because there's there's a point at which you and I are disagreeing about Rogers. And and in in all candor, I think it's because you're ignoring one part of Rogers. And if I'm wrong, I want you to tell me. You you quote the the slightest bit language uh, from Rogers on, on both page 26 and 33 of your brief. And uh, you, you, you take that as, as being language that eliminates the, the, probab- the, the proximate cause uh, requirement. What you don't include in your quotation is the footnote in Justice Brennan's opinion 
following that slightest cause language. And the footnote was to a citation. The citation was to the Corey case. The opinion in Corey was written by Justice Douglas. And uh, I'm sorry, Justice Black. And in the, the very language that Justice Black uh, used, he said expressly uh, that if proximate cause is shown, there can be recovery. Now, given the fact that in, in Rogers, the very citation to the language which you say eliminated uh, the, the, the proximate cause requirement, cited a case in which proximate cause was part of the very sentence relied on, I don't see how you can read Rogers, maybe later cases, but I don't see how you can read Rogers as eliminating the proximate cause requirement. And, and therefore, I think you have to read Rogers as addressing the issue of multiple causation, not proximate causation. Now, am I going wrong there somewhere? Um, I have two responses, Your Honor. First, Justice Brennan wrote Crane 12 years later. Absolutely right. And he, you know, definitely clearly said that a railroad worker does not have to prove, prove common law proximate causation it, relying on Rogers. It, it, he did, but he was also pointing out in there, just to make it simpler, he was pointing out in Crane that the liability arose in, in Crane out of the, I forget the full name of it, the Appliance Act. Uh, and the Appliance Act uh, had its own set of standards. Uh, and, and therefore, you cannot, uh, from, the, from an Appliance Act case, you, you cannot infer anything one way or the other about the general standard in FILA. And to make it even more complicated, as I recall, Rogers was an appliance case, too. But he didn't get into that there. But my, my only point is, uh, you're, you're right about the, the two Brennan opinions, Rogers and, and, and uh, the, the, the Sec Crane. Uh, but given the fact of the appliance case, I don't think you can infer one thing or another uh, about a, an, an ultimate FELA standard in the absence of an, an appliance action. What remains is that the citation in Rogers uh, was to Corey, and Corey spoke about there still being proximate cause. Yes, but if we look at those earlier cases, particularly Corey, we can see that Rogers articulated what was meant by that proximate cause language. Proximate cause is, in a sense, a label for scope of liability or legal cause, as the restatement says. It doesn't have any singular um, conception. And in Corey, the well, court it's, found it's understood by by everybody, isn't it, that at least it has the conception which is which is. Uh, uh, captured by using the word direct as, as in uh, Instruction 13, uh, and, and, and it, it at least has that core of meaning whenever it's used, doesn't it? In other words, it may not have the, a lot of the bells and whistles uh, associated with it in the prior law, but at least it requires some direct causation uh, as opposed to indirect, right? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And and, and that's, I don't know that, that, uh, that Justice Brennan's citation to Corey or Corey's use of the language carried you any further than that. But that's as far as Mr. Phillips wants to go. But, but even, we don't accept that. But even if that's the case, the Rogers, the parties to Rogers immediately interpreted that decision as affecting proximate cause. Twelve years later, this court did say that in, in Crane. The lower courts have uniformly, nearly uniformly, interpreted Rogers in a certain way. And at this point, stare decisis 
suggest that, that, that this Court that, should not overrule. That may be. That may be. But it seems to me that that's a different argument from saying Rogers requires it, because I don't think you can get that out of Rogers. Well, I, and I also think, though, that by lightening, by saying the slightest cause possible, or, you know, a slight cause would create liability, that does affect proximate cause. Oh, it, you, don't have to, you don't have to say that. I mean, you know, when in doubt, we ought to follow the words of the statute. And so whole or in part makes sense with the railroad, but directly doesn't appear in Section 53. Why don't we just — why shouldn't the instruction just say such negligence of the plaintiff contributed to cause his injury? It's not going to be a complete bar because we know the immediate — the next instruction talks about reducing the award by the amount of the negligence. Why, why wouldn't that be preferable to introducing extraneous terms? Because the, la- I, the Section 53 refers to the contributory negligence that created a bar, and, and that was the type of negligence that required proximate cause. Moreover, the type of um, instruction you're positing is not at all what petitioner requested in this case. Well, no, but he requested that the instructions be the same, and that directly is what causes the problem, and directly doesn't appear in the, in the statute. But under Missouri procedure, you have to be clear in the nature of your objection, and the objection was that we want the same language. We want the language resulting in whole or in part. And out of respect for the state courts and their right to create the rules that govern um, in those courts, that was not satisfactory under Missouri rules. Missouri rules also have specific requirements for what you have to do in the Court of Appeals. There's a point relied on, which is the argument heading in the brief, and it's required by Rule 84.04. And they set forth a very specific format, and it's supposed to start with the trial court aired in, and then you give your, your reasons. And it, um, it says that Negligent, they, it erred in instructing the jury to find plaintiff negligent only if it concluded that his negligence directly contributed to cause his injury rather than caused his injury in whole or in part. You know, there, there is no issue that was preserved in the Missouri court other than that challenge. Cook versus Caldwell, which we cite in our brief in Missouri, not only do you have to object, but you have to keep consistent with the basis of the objection. You can't just object to Instruction 13 on one ground, go up to the Court of Appeal, and raise a completely different challenge to Instruction 13. You have to stay consistent. And out of respect — Do you think they raised an objection based on the doctrine of equivalence? That was a justification for rewriting Instruction 13 to include the words resulting in whole or in part. I do not think they raised an abstract argument about equivalency, that in order to do that, they would have had to object to Instruction 12 and Instruction 13, because equivalency in the abstract would require modification of both instructions. And they clearly chose to accept the language of Instruction 12 and only object to Instruction 13. So, no, not in the abstract. It hasn't been raised. It was a justification for one particular result, and that was a result um, that would have modified Instruction 13, and in in a particular way, too modified it in the way of including the words resulting in whole or in part. What, what I guess they, they want to make the argument now, whether they did or not, that if you look at Section 53, which I think is the part dealing with contributory negligence, I don't see anything else. It doesn't speak of causation at all. Exactly, Your Honor. It just says if there's some contributory negligence, the damages will be diminished according to the negligence attributable to the employee. So I take it their argument was, maybe with hindsight, 
judge, don't give this direct language because nothing requires it. And since other things being equal, nothing requires it, you ought to give the same language you gave for the other side. And they say the judge rejected that argument. So now they tell us, well, that was wrong. He should have accepted it. And all the rest of what he's saying is just in case the court wants to reach it or something like that. Well, what about that one? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Could you re- I, Well, I mean, should we answer the question he now, uh, perhaps in his minimalist position, uh, might want to raise or maybe did, that Section 53 doesn't speak oh, of causation. Thank you. The judge gave a in causation instruction. The judge's causation instruction, in their view, was wrong. And the law requires the judge's causation instruction on contributory negligence, if there is one, to be the same as it was on direct, the the, the defendant's negligence. And he says that isn't what happened. We objected to it. We produced arguments. One of them was this equivalence thing. So he's saying to us, decide it. Say that they were wrong. What's your view of that? I di- yes, um, we disagree with petitioner. Oh, I'm not it- surprised. <laughs> um, the the abstract question of equivalency. No, no, was that's not- just an argument. Right. It 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 no, was. It was not. But he said, of- nonetheless, we did object that this instruction was wrong. Mm-hmm. One reason it was wrong is because it speaks of causation differently than when they spoke of causation in respect to the railroad. We thought that was a reason why it was wrong then. We think that's a reason why it was wrong now. And we would like the Missouri court, but they wouldn't do it, so we want you to say it was wrong for that reason. Well, I think we're in a difficult position right now because they're asking for proximate cause in their blue brief. I think oh, we say, well, we will abandon all that. That's just a series of different arguments. <laughs> we'd like the court to say. Okay. If we're, if we're putting aside the blue brief, then. Um, oh, you see, if you read it carefully, you'll see it. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, if the question goes to uh, the fact that Section 53 doesn't have an express causation standard in it, what you fall back on is traditional proximate cause, that Congress de- uh, departed from the traditional proximate cause standard by using the words resulting in whole or in part in Section 51. It didn't create the same departure in Section 53. In fact, by referring to the kind of contributory negligence that creates a bar, it was pretty much pointing you right back to proximate cause. Can you, and that more, makes can you have more than one proximate cause? I believe the treatises would say yes. Of course. <laughs> so th- then, then, then how can in whole or in part, possibly eliminate the proximate cause requirement because it could be in part and still be a proximate cause. How can that language possibly be interpreted to eliminate the proximate cause requirement? Because when a, a cause that can be — when a slightest cause can give rise to liability, that has effectively reduced or relaxed that causation standard. There's still a legal cause requirement, yes, but it could be but the slightest direct cause, which is, is Justice Scalia's point. Well, but if we look at, like, the f- first... Now, it may mislead the jury, if that's all you say, but as a matter of, of analyzing the, the, the statute, 
or even of analyzing what the Court meant in Rogers, uh, you can have a slight but direct cause. And that would be proximate cause uh, in, in the traditional analysis. Isn't that so? Well, it, no. Um, the restatement, for example, at the time of Rogers, talked about substantial factors Wait, can, and talked in other say, words. How can you say no when you acknowledge that the prior law, when there was contributory negligence, used to require proximate cause for both the negligence of the defendant and for the, and for the contributory negligence of the defendant. Such a situation could not exist unless proximate cause doesn't have to be the sole cause. It can be just the cause in part, right? Right. So the mere fact that we had contributory negligence uh, statutes that were applying proximate cause requirements demonstrates that a proximate cause can be a cause in part. Yes, Your Honor, but what Rogers and the statute recognize is that it can be a very, very slight cause. And what it was understood, well, for example, it, in the Rogers state might have said, but the statute doesn't say anything about slight cause. It only says in whole or in part. And neither did the instruction. It just used the words re- resulting in whole or in part also. Um, but Rogers did interpret the language resulting in whole or in part as meaning playing any part, even the slightest. And that has been the law for 50 years. And it would be a massive change in the law, as Justice Scalia said earlier, for this Court to depart from that at this point in time. Well, do you slight agree that in — no. It doesn't seem to me that slight is the opposite of proximate. It could be a slight proximate cause. I — the restatement at the time of Rogers talked about substantial factors. And in the comment to that, it explains that sometimes the other causes can be so predominant that one causation is, is just not sufficiently significant or of su- sufficient um, quantum to constitute a, a legal cause. So there is a component of quantity within the concept of proximate cause. Um, I believe their reply brief talks about substantial factor. And to talk about something as being a substantial factor does have a quantum component to it, just as slight has a quantum component to it. A slight cause could not be a substantial factor or oftentimes would not be a substantial factor. So the two really do go hand in glove. But under the the old rule that plaintiff's negligence in whatever degree was an absolute bar to recovery, wasn't the rule uh, customarily stated that plaintiff's negligence, however slight, was a total bar to recovery? I'm not aware of that, Your Honor. I, I, it may I be. thought it was. I may I, be wrong. I, I am not aware of that. So that would be a pretty harsh remedy if well, that it was, were the I, case. I, I thought, yeah, and it, I was, thought it was a pretty harsh rule. You know, um, and clearly Congress in this statute was trying to move away from the common law in many respects to protect the railroad worker. And the interpretation of Section 51 is lightening the causation standard for the defendant's negligence, but leaving intact the traditional proximate cause standard for plaintiff's contributory negligence completely comports with the purpose of Congress what, in enacting the statute. Why isn't in whole or in part simply the logical corollary of introducing comparative negligence? Why do you have to read that as departing from proximate cause as simply, instead of simply recognizing that under 53, uh, negligence on the part of the employee can, can reduce um, recovery which, without barring it? 
I reached that conclusion on the basis of Rogers. And well, even the petitioner's that, brief. If beyond that, if the, if the plaintiff's negligence was in whole the cause of the action, then they, there was no reason to get to comparative negligence or contributory negligence, because by hypothesis, there would have been no negligence for the, by the defendant. Yes, Your Honor. Well, that's why you don't have in whole or in part in 53. Not because they wanted to depart from proximate cause there, but because, as Justice Stevens pointed out, you wouldn't have it in whole or in part. Even the petitioner's brief describes the language resulting in whole or in part as an elaboration of proximate cause. They recognize that it has bearing on proximate cause. Um, and so if it has bearing on proximate cause in Section 51, it certainly would have bearing on proximate cause if it was in- incorporated into the, langu- the language of the instruction on contributory negligence. So that may be one reason for not including the language, but another reason is that it does affect the causation standard. And Congress did not incorporate it in Section 53, whereas it did have it in Section 51. And when it modified the statute in 1939 for assumption of the risk, to abolish assumption of the risk, it did not equate proximate cause and resulting in whole or in part necessarily as the same thing, because one version had proximate cause and it was not adopted. The phrase resulting in whole or in part was used in its place. So suggesting that Congress may, in fact, have seen a difference, just as Rogers concluded, and I think rightly so. Moreover, as I've said, that has been the law for 50 years. And it's pretty settled in this country, and it would create a massive change if this Court were to depart from that. Moreover, this is not the right case to decide that, because the language in Instruction 12 said resulting in whole or in part. And Petitioner has never not, not suggested Not the kind of any- change anybody would have relied on, is it? I mean... I find it hard to see reliance interests on this on this interpretation. Um, excuse me, Your Honor. I find it hard to see any reliance interest on this 50-year-old interpretation. Is there anybody doing something differently because they believe that the railroad does not have to be accused of proximate causality? Well, does it, anybody act differently because of that rule? I don't think so. Well, for Mr. Sorrell in particular. I mean, he acted that he allowed that instruction to be used, and now they're attempting to disrupt this judgment. Um, well, I suppose employees relied on the rule for a long time. Yeah. I, I suppose employee associations, workman compensation schemes in Congress have all relied on it. Yes, you're absolutely right, Your Honor. I mean, there isn't workers' compensation for uh, Railroad workers, and that may very well be because of this interpretation of Rogers that was adopted 50 years ago. Thank you, Ms. Perry. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Phillips, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like to address the sort of two issues. One is the minimalist issue that Justice Breyer asked about. It seems to me that, that the minimalist way to look at this case is we raise the question of whether or not the Missouri standard, which says that you cannot deviate from our designated instructions, creates a disparity in the way you approach negligence and contributory negligence. That disparity is inconsistent with the common law doctrines, and nothing in FELA modifies it, and it's wrong. And that by itself warrants the case being set aside and a new, and a new jury being in a new trial. That's the simplest way to resolve the issue. If the Court wishes to go forward and deal with the issue that Justice Souter addressed, then the question is, what, what does Rogers mean? And what do you do with this in whole or in part language? And if you go back, to, you know, you asked the question, Justice Souter, you know, what did the common law say? We cite this in page 38. 
if its negligence contributes proximately to the injury, no matter how slightly. There must be a dozen cases that we cite in those briefs that talk about no matter how slightly, and that refer to in whole or in part as, as language that still recognizes that you still require proximate causation. The reality is nothing in Rogers remotely cast out on cases like Brady that say, but for causation is not enough. You have to have proximate causation. Nothing said, or, or earnest, where this court said correct, that, that proximate causation is the correct jury instruction that has to be given. The Supreme, this court said nothing Could about you it. You in, have in Rogers. your ideal instruction, the words proximate cause given to the jury that defendant's negligence must be the proximate cause of plaintiff's injury? No, no, Justice Ginsburg, we didn't ask for that. All I'm saying to you is that in guidance to the courts on remand, you could, and we would ask you to, address that issue and to resolve it. It's fairly in front of you. But in your model instruction, in your correct instruction, would the jury be told, in order to hold the defendant liable, you must find that the defendant's negligence is the proximate cause a plaintiff's injury. Yes, that would be you my preferred instruction on remand. Yes, even I though almost universally, the, the term proximate cause has been criticized as totally incomprehensible to juries. May well, I ask just one very brief question, Mr. Chief Justice? Would your, would, in your view, would the doctrine of equivalence be satisfied if we simply directed that the word directly be omitted from the instruction 13? I think that would certainly go a long way. I don't know exactly how strictly you want to do it, but sure. That, I mean, that's the pivotal problem with the way that instruction reads today, Justice Stevens. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. The case is submitted.